Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. Today is the deadline for supporters of a campaign to recall Governor Gavin Newsom to submit enough voter signatures to force an election. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati has more. The recall campaign claims it submitted the nearly one and a half million signatures needed to force an election, which would take place later this year. And on Tuesday, Newsom said an election was likely a reality. Look, we're, we're anticipating that they've got the signatures. Supporters of the recall say Newsom's handling of school and business closures has exposed the need for new leadership. Newsom says the campaign is really an attack on California's liberal policies. And so I'm not just fighting for me, I'm fighting for you, I'm fighting for the values of the state. On Tuesday, former Sacramento Congressman Doug Osi became the latest Republican to announce he'll join the race to potentially replace Newsom. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. A group that's been tracking discrimination and hate crimes against Asian Americans across the country is calling the deadly mass shooting in Atlanta last night an unspeakable tragedy. That shooting left eight people dead. Six of them were of Asian descent. Although details are still coming in, the group Stop AAPI Hate says, quote, there's a great deal of fear and pain in the Asian American community that must be addressed. The group runs the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center, which has been tracking incidents of discrimination, hate and xenophobia since the start of the pandemic. New data released yesterday from the center shows it received nearly 1,700 reports of anti-Asian discrimination here in California alone in the last year. The family of a San Quentin inmate who died from COVID-19 has sued California corrections officials over their response to the pandemic. KQED's Holly J. McDeed reports. The lawsuit says CDCR acted with deliberate indifference when they transferred high-risk inmates from a prison in Chino to San Quentin last May. 61-year-old Daniel Ruiz was due for early release, but then contracted COVID-19 while in prison. He died in July. Michael Haddad is the family's attorney. We want to find out exactly how this happened to make sure this kind of thing can't happen again. And ultimately, the family is, of course, seeking accountability and justice as well. A spokesperson for CDCR said they have not yet been served the lawsuit and will evaluate the claims once officials receive it. For The California Report, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Let's go to the Central Valley now. Over a thousand farm workers in Kern County have gotten their first round of COVID-19 vaccines. As Valley Public Radio's Mari Balanos reports, the United Farm Workers Foundation and partnering organizations have plans to vaccinate thousands more in the coming weeks. The UFW Foundation, in partnership with the Kern County Latino COVID-19 Task Force, is vaccinating farm workers every weekend for the next three weeks as part of the county's initiative to get more farm workers vaccinated. 
For the first weekend, UFW Foundation President Teresa Romero says 500 people were registered for each day. We had uh, probably each day a couple of hundred people who did not register uh, at all, but we still were able to give them the vaccination. Although it's better for farm workers to register in advance, she says, the only thing they need to provide is a form of ID. We're not asking for any uh, legal residency. We're not asking for anything other than just some some uh, health questions. To register, call the UFW Foundation's hotline or the Project Abuelita hotline from the Kern County Latino COVID-19 Task Force. For the California Report, I'm Madi Bolaños. In Southern California, as more and more businesses open up indoors, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors wants inspectors to focus more on education and less on fines when it comes to visits. In a unanimous vote yesterday, the board approved new guidance that focuses on penalizing only the worst or repeat offenders for any COVID-related violations. Two supervisors had proposed that health inspectors not impose any fines at all on a first visit, but that plan was amended over concerns that some business owners would rather rather pay a fine than follow health guidelines. Violations that result in fines include failures to screen employees and report outbreaks and not requiring employees to wear masks. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. As stimulus checks start landing in mailboxes this week, you might be wondering how the federal government is paying for it. Well, Reuters reporter Anne Safir answers questions like that for a living. Here she was chatting with her daughter May recently. So what do you want to know? What do you curious about or confused about the economy well i just don't know why like okay i get that printing more money would cause inflation but that like still doesn't really make sense to me like why does it have to be like that wait why does so what do you think why does it they should just print enough money so that everybody can be like satisfied and like able to live with their basic human needs And so why can't they just do that? Yeah. First of all, great questions from May. So can we just print money? Well, Anne and I picked up the conversation there. The standard economist answer is, no, you can't print money because if you print money, there's just going to be 
more of it out there and it will be worth less. The more you have of something, the less it's worth. It's the classic supply-demand rule of economics. But in this situation, that's actually similar to what the government is doing. So then why won't that cause some kind of inflation and mean that, you know, each time you buy an egg or fill up your gas tank, it's going to cost you a lot more. So your money will be worth less because somebody just printed a bunch of it. What's been happening around the world and also in the United States for the last decade, decade and a half, maybe, has been a lot of downward pressure on prices from things like technology, like Amazon. There's a lot of globalization. So there's all these sort of Mm -hmm. global forces pushing down on prices. Even when you flood an economy with a ton of money, which is kind of what's happening with the stimulus and also with what the Fed is doing, it doesn't have the effect that you might have thought it would have had Mm -hmm. and that it actually has had, you know, in years past. It doesn't have that force of pushing up the prices in the same way. Um, That seems to be a real head scratcher for people uh, at the Fed to some extent, people who report on the Fed like you. um, Where is inflation? You know, (laughs) when is it ever going to come back? It just seems like it's been really stagnant for quite a while. You report on the economy, and that can be a very um, sort of lofty, uh, esoteric thing to do. But the economic indicators are everywhere. There's so much more visible as you go out and do your work. Can you talk a little bit about how reporting on the economy has changed for you since the pandemic? It's true. It's everywhere. We just go out to go buy some food for our pet rats and walking into that mall, the way it looks physically has entirely changed. Half the stores are gone now. So all the people who used to work in those stores no longer have jobs. The IHOP there has all its tables outside and people are eating their pancakes placed at tables six or 10 feet away from each other. So yes, they have business, but there's probably a lot fewer people eating at that restaurant than used to. There's just a lot of changes that you see really visibly that you didn't necessarily see uh, or at least I didn't necessarily see so easily during the Great Recession. It's just been a, a very visceral experience trying to yeah. cover what's going on. Well, Anne Safir of Reuters, thank you. Thank you, Lily. This week, the California Report is bringing you stories from our collaboration with CalMatters College Journalism Network. And we're looking at how the experiences of college has changed during the pandemic. Today, our focus is on nursing students. California was already facing bottlenecks in its nursing supply pre-pandemic. And because of COVID-19 constraints, students have spent the last year with limited access to in-person training. Shireen Kareem, a second-year student at Pierce College in Los Angeles, got a first-hand look. You know, one of the things that we've done, even though it really doesn't mimic a urethra, is like water bottles. Like putting a water bottle into the stuffed animal, like, you know, little opening, things like that. But someone's urethral opening is smaller than a water bottle hole. Erin Abile is a nursing student at San Diego State University. She's talking about learning how to use a Foley catheter a medical procedure where a tube is inserted into a patient's urethra to collect their urine. Normally, Abile would be practicing this task on a medical mannequin, but these days, her model is a unicorn pillow pet. Before the pandemic, when I learned Foley catheter, 
I only practiced it when I was in person. I only practiced it when I had access to the labs. And now I can practice it at any time. You know, why couldn't that be a good thing? Here's why, says Abile. It's not a good thing when there's no one there to correct my habits. And so it becomes a habit-forming thing. And it's hard to break habits when you have practiced that so many times. So it's really good to correct them while you're while you're still learning. Gerard Brogan, director of nursing practice at the California Nursing Association, says he's worried remote training will compromise the clinical skills of newer nurses. He explains why by sharing an example about a friend who felt a constant need to urinate after he was catheterized during a hospital stay. So he asked uh, the nurse coming by, who was a new grad who'd done stimulation. She looked at the computer readout and said, everything's fine. Um, then he saw an older nurse who was trained not on the simulation, told her the exact same problem. She looked at the catheter pipe, for want of a better term, and it was kinked. With hospitals overwhelmed with patients during the pandemic, nursing programs are struggling to provide enough clinical hours to their nursing students. This forced the Board of Nursing to allow for relaxed requirements, and now students like Erin Abile are doing simulation exercises half of the time, instead of a quarter of the time, like usual. On top of this, some nursing programs had to pause schooling entirely until they could adapt to the new remote learning, says Joran Spetz of UC San Francisco. This will delay the supply of new nurses. At the same time, some current staff are burning out. Losing nurses close to retirement a few years early is not great, but we knew that they were going to retire. If we end up losing a bunch of nurses who are in their 30s, Those are nurses who had another 20 or 30 years of working life available for us. There are also deeper concerns about remote training, beyond just being able to effectively insert a catheter. Here's Gerard Brogan again. Common sense would tell you that you cannot simulate uh, emotion. Nurses look after people in the last stages of their life, for example, uh, and you cannot simulate the fear and dread. And frankly, we're worried about the attempt to do so. In this assignment, you will care for Tina Jones, a 28-year-old woman who has been admitted to Shadow General Hospital to treat an infected wound on her foot. You will also consider Tina's chronic health conditions, type 2 diabetes mellitus, and allergy-induced asthma. Yeah, that's like the background. She's giving me my background on my patient. Over Zoom, Erin Abile walks you through one of her simulation exercises. The lesson tests her knowledge on basic vital checks and pharmacology, but Abile can't really communicate with her patient. At one point, Abile says something completely unrelated to the lesson, but patient Tina Jones still responds with a mechanical affirmation. So it's to say that Tina Jones, I don't know much about her besides what meds I need to give her, the pain she was feeling on her left leg, and I couldn't pry more into her personality. I couldn't pry into her personal life. I couldn't pry into her worries. I couldn't pry even into her pain for some reason. The areas of hospitals that have been most restricted from nursing students are emergency rooms and ICUs, because those are the places where it's hardest to manage risk. That means that nursing students are cut off from important specialized in-person training at a time when California needs specialized nurses more than it has in decades. For the California Report, I'm Shireen Kareem in Winneka. And that is the California Report for this St. Patrick's Day Wednesday. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. 
Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.